Good evening, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of the Out of Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show, OutofLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Today is our five-year anniversary, February 27, 2014. We aired our first program, and it featured an introspective interview with Mr. Jeffrey Gurian, and it featured the very first forensic soul analysis. We analyzed Jeffrey's past lives. We analyzed his astrological chart, and that was all due in part to the Outer Limits of Inner Tooth Radio Show Virtues, who are still with us to this day. Psychic medium, Miss Carrie O'Connor. Psychic empath, Lisa Kaza. An astrologer, Miss Constantellis, and at one point we had with us Miss Laura Lynn, a past life reader. I am blown away by what we've done on our program. Our listeners are awesome. We even have a group of listeners called the Council of Elders that regularly contribute ideas that give a lot of feedback. I'd say the quality of the show has improved so much because of their suggestions. In terms of guests, I mean, we just had Robert Green on our show last week. He is incredible. He's a visionary. And we've had people like Judith Regan. We did the very last interview with Frank Vincent from Goodfellas and Sopranos before he passed. We had actor and legendary comedian Richard Belzer on our show. Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, came on our show twice. We had a groundbreaking program with Miss Nancy Dannison. Dr. Ron Paul even appeared on our show twice. So we have a real high-quality group of people that are coming on our program on a regular basis. A lot of our teachers are very cutting edge. Oh, let's not acknowledge that. We have to acknowledge the fact that we did the very first interview with the channeled spirit, Chung Fu, who's been teaching on the earth for 40 years, decided to make his premiere, his debut media appearance on our show. We do things very differently. I feel that we ask questions that other shows may not ask. We go deeper than other shows go. And some of our signature programs have included death, healing and recovery program, which was 18 hours long, 14 parts, and had over 65 guests. And we covered that from all different angles. We did a show on weight loss. We did a show about the metaphysical and psychological aspects of MDMA we talked about suicide. We talked about forgiveness. We've gone through and done cutting edge shows regarding health. We've also focused on things well beyond metaphysics. We focused on critical thinking. There is no stone for which we will not turn over to find truth and information, and we are absolutely fearless. And right now, I just want to point out and acknowledge someone I owe a, a huge debt of gratitude to, somebody who... Um, is uh, very close to me and somebody who uh, I just love from the very bottom of my heart that I don't really acknowledge too often on our show. So um, thank you so much, illicit drugs. Thank you. You have been so wonderful. For if I did not have you running through my veins and in my brain cells, we would not come up with nearly as many creative shows. (laughs) I'm so glad I did not listen to you, Miss Nancy Reagan. Just say no. Just say no. I don't think so. I said yes, and we got some pretty interesting shows out of it. (laughs) I'm just kidding, but I'll tell you what. Having a sense of humor and not taking life seriously, I think, is another staple mark of the Outer Limits of Inner Truth. It's the only show where we could cover something so seriously and laugh about it at the same time. Because, let's face it, 
life is short. Why get wrapped up in taking life so seriously? And that was a signature lesson of Stuart Wilde, who I've mentioned so many times on our show before. He was one of my greatest teachers and Out of Limits of Inner Truth premiered less than a year after he passed. And I always wanted to carry a part of his energy. So the Out of Limits of Inner Truth, every one of the shows is an acknowledgement and a way I try to honor Stuart with that. He's so amazing. And we're going to do another show about him very soon. But I want to thank everyone who's been with the program from day one or who've just started with us recently. From the bottom of my heart, you are driving this thing. I love all of you. It's awesome to be on this ride and journey with you. There are so many more shows for us to cover, so many more topics for us to cover, so many aspects of conscious explorations for us to cover. And I hope you'll continue to stay with us from years to come. We are going to re-air that very first show we did on February 27, 2014. And you'll find out that Jeffrey and our virtues are referring to me by the name of Jack. I, I did not want to have my real name at first. I thought this was—I didn't know where the show was going to go, and I was afraid of going viral. I, I was just—I don't know. I was just—I wanted to have a code name, like I'm going to be Jack. But uh, I guess Ryan turned out to be an easier name. <laughs> and you'll hear the style of the questionings that we had, and we're going to air the very first intro that we had to the Outer Limits of Inner Truth. So, to all people who've been with us, thank you so much. It's in five years, and I wish upon all of you an abundance of peace. Love and beers. Let's turn back the clock and re-air our very first show. If you feel there's more to life than iPhones and iPads and mindless consumerism, if you're open to receiving information in all forms in any number of ways, if organized religion, organized political movements, and any kind of collectivism doesn't just quite cut it for you, if you engage in critical thinking, if you think for yourself, if you have peace and love in your heart and Jack Daniels in your bloodstream, if you believe that seriousness is a disease, if you're curious, then come, let us go on a journey together as we explore the outer limits of inner truth. And welcome to the Outer Limits of Inner Truth radio show. This is our very first show that we are doing, and it is going to be the world's only show about forensic soul analysis, which means that we're going to interview somebody um, interesting, and then we're going to have a team of psychics and astrologer analyze them. So we're, we're going to explore their past lives and who they were, find out what the soul purposes. We, I think this is going to be different. I don't know of any other program that has done this before, but you know, this is going to be a fun journey, and I know that we have some really interesting people to reach out to. And we're going to first bring on our very first featured guest. He's a dear friend. His name is Mr. Jeffrey Gurian. And let us begin our interview with Jeffrey. We are honored today to have on our show Mr. Jeffrey Gurian. Jeffrey Gurian is a comedy writer, comedy writer, a filmmaker, a cosmetic dentist, a spiritualist, a healer, a performer, and an author. He's written for the Friars Club Roast for more than 25 years. Jeffrey is also a doctor, professor at NYU in the oral medicine oral facial pain department. 
He served on the board of the Association for Spirituality and Psychotherapy for the last 10 years. He found a cure for stuttering. He's been involved for many years in the esoteric art of healing through touch and using a technique called star therapy. Jeffrey treats stress-related illnesses and depression. This is what one man has done in one lifetime. Thus far, he's relatively young. So, Jeffrey, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you for having me, Jack. It's always an honor. Absolutely. I'm very uh, excited to be Jeffrey, on with you. Uh, thank you. Same here. Jeffrey, you've expressed your energy in this life in a number of different ways, between being a dentist, a comedy writer, author, and all those other things we just mentioned. You know, it would appear that you are fully utilizing your potential. Uh, what motiv- well, what motivates you to become so skilled? Well, good. thank you. I was going to say, unfortunately, there were a few things that you left out. <laughs> oh, <laughs> because okay. no, but that's all, that. No, but that's quite all right. It's, you know, what what? Uh, excuse me. What motivated me to become skilled at so many different talents? First of all, thank you for saying that. Uh, I've been on a quest all my life, and I feel like it's a quest for knowledge and truth. And to be honest with you, it would have been a lot easier if I only had one interest. But I remember very clearly, it's very interesting, I remember very clearly at 12 years old deciding what I wanted to do. I don't know what made me think I had to make a decision at that age because it's a very young age to decide what you want to do. Most boys say I want to be a cop or a fireman or a football player. I knew I wanted to be a doctor of some kind and I already knew that my sensitivity at that time was a burden to me. I was a very, very ultra-sensitive child, and I, I talk a lot about sensitivity, but to the point where, as a child, if I just thought that my grandmother lived alone, it would bring tears to my eyes. And so, for many years, my sensitivity felt like a weakness instead of a strength. Um, I knew I wanted to be a doctor, as I said, and but I knew that I couldn't handle life-and-death situations, even at that young age. I knew that it was too much for me. And I was going to an orthodontist, and I thought he was a great guy. And I said, you know what? That's what I want to be. I want to be an orthodontist. And and, and that's what I really thought I was going to start out to be, an orthodontist, make people's teeth look straight, because I knew a smile is so important. And And at the same time, I was already writing comedy. Already at 12 years old, I was writing things. And <clears throat> I had this dream that I wanted to be in show business. But I grew up in the Bronx in a very middle-class background. Nobody was in show business. It didn't seem like a real dream to me. And I remember thinking to myself, how can you be famous and be a dentist? There's no such thing as a famous dentist. What are you gonna, how are you going to pull that off? You know? And, and I clearly, I really remember having that thought. I used to, I must have been an unusual kid. I did a lot of thinking. You know, my mom yeah, told me that I... You were sensitive. I'm just saying, when you were saying you were being sensitive, did you yeah. mean that you were just able to, you were able to feel what other people were feeling, or are you just um, yes, exactly. I guess more empathetic I, I, to people? If I was with you and you were sad, I was sadder for you than you were, which I later, in many years later, I found out that I'm an empath, that I can feel what other people feel, which made me very good in my field as a cosmetic dentist and in practice. You know, I would do uh, surgery. Uh, when I needed to, mostly cosmetic surgery, and um, patients 
very often told me that they didn't need painkillers afterwards, that I did such gentle surgery, even in the rare times when I had to extract a tooth, which I would go out of my way not to do. I tried to save everything that I could. I was very conservative in my nature. Uh, they, people would say, I didn't need painkillers. And I, I developed this technique that if you, if you treat the body gently, it responds in kind, because every part of your body has its own consciousness. Every part of your body is like a child. And when a child gets hurt, it needs to be held. And when you touch people in a certain way, you can convey that sense of safety to them. And your body understands that, no matter where you're working. It's like if you hurt your arm, your natural inclination will be to hold your arm. And so I would do that when I was working on people, you know. And many years later, I heard that Mehmet Oz, Dr. Oz, would do that when he would do heart surgery. He would hold the heart in his hands. And he would actually talk to it, you know, and that made sense to me. To a lot of people, that sounds insane, but to me, it makes sense. And so, you know, I had to learn so much about my sensitivity so that it didn't work against me. And it's part of overcoming obstacles, which I talk about a lot in my life. I had to overcome many obstacles in order to okay. be able to help other people. But when I was a kid, life, obstacles. Yeah. As you Same. said, though, when you were asking me about what motivated me, so I had those two. I had those two drives. I wanted to be uh, a doctor, and, and I decided on dentistry because no one dies in dentistry. The worst that could happen is your nerve dies. You know what I mean? The nerve in your tooth dies, but the patient doesn't die. And so I figured, okay, I can handle that. And I wanted to be involved in comedy in some way. And so my whole life has been the combination of those two things, putting positive energy out to the world. And that's what motivates okay. me. You're motivated by putting positive energy out. Now, um, that's my you goal. That is to, to put positive energy out in the world. And of all things that you've done, um, what would you say? Well, I just want to go back to one thing about your sensitivity. How did your sensitivity um, pose as a challenge to you when you were growing up? I mean, you said you. Be, how did you manage it and not be so empathetic to people? Were you able? To, how would be able to somehow grow out of it? Very difficult. Analyze it along. Well, it was very difficult. Uh, I remember, you know, I was the kind of kid like if I saw a kid that looked like he didn't have money for lunch, I would bring him home with me, without telling my mom. I would just show up with the kid and say, you know, he's here for lunch. Uh, my mom would be fine with that, but I always I looked at other people to see what I could do to be helpful to them. I just felt bad for people in general. Not that I had a lot. Like I said, we grew up very simply. You know, in the Bronx, growing up in those days, it was a big deal if someone played tennis. It's like, you know, going to Europe, you know. It was unheard of. A big deal was driving to Florida. That was a vacation. We would drive across the country to go to Florida, you know, nobody even flew in those days. We just drove places. So I had a very simple background, and <clears throat> I had to learn that my sensitivity could be used in ways that didn't work against me. Because when you live your life that way, you know, you're at the mercy of every stranger that crosses your path. People, Some people have hurtful things to say. You know, I call them heart wounds in my healing work, you know, I didn't know it then. I didn't know to put a word to it. But when you're sensitive, you you get hurt a lot because most of the world is not functioning on that level. And there are people who will be listening to this show who will understand what I mean when I say that. People function on different levels. Sensitive people function on a very high level. 
we feel everything very deeply. That's why so many people in the entertainment field are troubled with different things, and you see uh, addiction and stuff is so rampant in the entertainment world because performers are by nature very sensitive people. If you're not sensitive, you can't take on a role. You can't really feel things, you know. Actors and, and artists of all kinds experience life on a very deep level, and they take things in and they hold on to them, and that can work against you. So I had to learn, you know, I had to learn to own my sensitivity as a strength because otherwise you can't be effective. You know, if I was with you and you were sad, I would have to back off because I couldn't handle it. And it might make it look like I didn't care, but the truth was I cared too much. So I had to back away. Now that I learned to own my sensitivity as a strength, if you're troubled, if you're sad, I can listen to you. I can be there to help you and get over that. You know, and so that's what I mean by learning to own your sensitivity as a strength. You can't get rid of it. You can't change your basic nature. And for people who think that they're too sensitive, there's a wonderful book that actually changed my life, which is I don't say that, you know, nonchalantly. And it's called Are You Really Too Sensitive? And it's written by a woman named Marcy Calhoun. I wish I wrote it, but I can take credit for it. <laughs> She's an amazing psychic in California, and she taught me. In reading that book, it taught me a lot about my sensitivity. And she broke it down into categories, which she called ultra-sensitives. And in reading the book, I am every single category of sensitive, every single one. And she states that that's possible to be, and it makes your life very difficult because you feel things that most people don't experience at all. Okay, you're mentioning the word feel a lot, and I'm just curious, do you feel that the heightened ability to empathize with people is rooted more in the emotional or rooted more in the spirit? Do you feel that the sympathy or the ability to sympathize with people is spirit or more emotional? I think it's a combination of both because I was given the ability as a very young child, only seven or eight years old, I already knew that I could take away certain pain with my hands and okay. I would do that on myself and my sister. And I didn't realize, in those, how how could I? I was just a child. I couldn't think of it in terms of a spiritual gift. It just made sense to me that if something hurt, I could put my hands on it and take away the pain. And I used it all my life. It just came very natural, which is one of the things that opened me up to the concept of past lives. You know, no one knows okay. whether those things are true or not, but I am open to it. And I believe that people should open themselves up to what I call comforting thoughts, that there is a uh, there are certain thoughts that no one can prove. It's like a belief in God. You believe, you know, there is or isn't. And what people say is it's better to believe there is and find out that there isn't than to go through life believing that there isn't and someday find out that there is. You should be open to anything that will help you lead a more comfortable life. Does that answer that question okay. for you? Yeah, absolutely. And then when you said when you have this um, it said <clears throat> gift, I mean, you said you, you, you got this gift. Can you explain why do you feel that you it got was this given gift? To and me. also, it was given to you. Who gave you the gift? It's a God-given gift. Or who do gift. you think gave it? Yeah, the universe gives you that. My parents didn't know anything about healing, alternative medicine. It wasn't even around in those days. No one taught it to me. It came naturally to me. That's what opens me up to the idea of past lives because 
I think that it, it could be a carryover. Sometimes you hear about little children, like three-year-old piano prodigies or something like that. Mm. Well, it makes sense to me that sometimes, you know, people have a soul that, and, and it's energy-based. And when people die, the body stops moving, but you can't kill energy. The energy may go somewhere. So I'm open to the concept that it could go into another person, into another soul. And, you know, maybe it's a carryover from a previous existence. I'm open to that. It makes sense to me. Because how would I know as a child? I remember very clearly practicing my touch. I don't remember things I did two weeks ago or this week even. But I remember sitting on the floor and practicing my touch on myself to make sure that I had a very light touch. That's a really strange thing for a kid to be concerned with, you know. I was always thinking about things like that. And if my sister had pain, I would just put my hands on her and take it away. And I did that throughout my life. And then when I when I became a, uh, a dentist, in my practice, I would do that a lot. People would come to me and they would feel comfortable and they would open up to me. And they would start telling me about problems they were facing in their lives. Because people tend to trust their dentist even more than their physicians because there's so much anxiety that goes along with going to the dentist. And people trusted me, and they opened up, and they would tell me these things. And I, would, I started taking away headaches and physical pain in my office. That became like a big part of what I did. I was very focused on TMJ. and I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but the temporomandibular joint is the master joint in your head. It's what allows your jaw to open and close. And when people are stressed, which most people in the world are, they tend to clench and grind their teeth, which causes many symptoms that doctors overlook. Because most physicians and even most dentists are not aware that things that seem like migraine headaches, neck pain, ear pain, dizziness, lightheadedness, ringing in the ears, shoulder pain even, uh, can be caused from your jaw, your TMJ, from stress, from clenching and grinding your teeth. And so that became a very big focus of my practice, making people gentle, soft appliances and using my hands to relax the muscles of their head and neck because I don't like to use drugs or injections or anything like that. I use knowledge and, and, and healing energy to take away pain. And I've been doing that all, all my life. In terms of your healing gift, do you feel that is it more or less, do you feel that the power of the healing is generated from within your heart, or do you feel that in some way you are facilitating the healing from another place, like you're facilitating the this beautiful healing from a, a celestial reality or celestial dimension? Well, there's no question. I mean, it can't come from me. I'm a channel for that. For whatever reason, I've been chosen to do that. My heart is open. And I'm a channel for healing energy that comes from the universe, whether it's God-given or whatever. It's certainly not from me. It comes through me. You know, people always tell me they feel the warmth of my hands. I, I had a guy recently who jumped. We were in this circle where people held on to each other's shoulders. And when I put my hand on his back, he literally jumped. He said, I thought you burnt me with something hot. I said, are you kidding, really? Because that's how hot your hand is. <laughs> And I said, no, I, I do healing work, and I stay. my hands get very warm. And it was a spiritual group of people. And, you know, people have been telling me that for so many years, that my hands get very warm. So um, 
I carry that energy with me, and I try to bring it into everything I do. And I, I believe that I'm a channel. And I think that all people probably have the capacity for it, to one degree or another. On a very simple level, when I lecture, I tell people, you've all experienced healing energy. If you've ever been upset and someone that you trusted gave you a hug and you felt better afterwards, it's because you allowed them to transfer positive energy to you through that hug. Doing that for a stranger is the challenge. That's what's interesting about and it, that it doesn't have to be someone you've ever met before. With that same light, would you recommend then? Would you recommend not to have physical contact with someone who you have a feeling that probably is like angry or is a negative person? Like you know how sometimes you you come across people who are just uh, they're not exactly happy. But would you try to avoid physical contact with them to allow their energy not to transfer to you? Well, that's a very good question. Um, <clears throat> socially, yes. Socially, of course, you try and do that because there are negative forces in the world. So you try and protect your sensitivity by not allowing people in who either don't deserve to be there or will upset your serenity. You know, they'll take you off your center. I, I do believe in forces of evil in the world, and I believe that there are people who have a negative agenda. You know, all you have to do is read the paper every day and you see it. So I don't want those people to cross my path. And the... It, it's interesting. The higher you raise your level of consciousness, the less you come across people like that. Um, but when you're dealing with people, like if someone came to me for healing work, and they and I was experiencing that from them, then I would try and have them observe it. You know, it's like stepping outside of yourself. Part of the process is seeing yourself, being willing to look at yourself in an honest way. And if you're embracing negativity then I would want to bring out why. You know, the process of STAR therapy, you know, STAR is an acronym. It stands for Spiritual Transformational Affirmative Resonance Therapy. The resonance stands for three things. It stands for music, because I use music when I do it. It stands for my voice, because I speak the whole time that I do it. But mostly, it refers to a truth. If I say something to you that's true for you, that you need to hear, it'll feel comfortable to you. It'll resonate inside of you as a truth. It's based on the spiritual concept that we're all born with all the knowledge we already need inside of us. You know everything you need to know, but you don't know you know it. You're not in touch with it yet. It's inside of you. So when you meet someone who crosses your path, they may say or do something that puts you in touch with that knowledge, and it'll feel comfortable, and you'll be like, yeah, I get that. I understand. And so it's not so much what you learn, it's what gets reaffirmed to you. Because sensitive people need to be reaffirmed all the time. Because we tend to doubt ourselves, because most of the world doesn't function on that level. Does that make sense to you? So the the, the R is is for resonance. The A, affirmative, is because I use affirmations, positive affirmations to help people change the way they think which is very important, and it's important to understand that you can change a thought, that just because you hold a thought doesn't make that thought valid. It doesn't mean that it's true just because you thought it. We tend to believe our thoughts. And and uh, the and, T... Uh, yeah. I'm sorry. Pardon me? No, you t- Are you go, hearing me? Yeah, I'm hearing you, the T. Okay, and uh, the, the T, the transformational part is because it works so quickly. 
You know, sometimes I'll spend hours with a patient. The first time I might see somebody, I might spend three or four hours with them. Uh, because the success of healing is based on trust. And you can't get to know somebody in 40 minutes. And that's usually the typical amount of time that most therapists will give someone in traditional, let's say, psychotherapy, like 40, 45 minute, hour, you know, uh, an hour. Their, their hour is like 40 to 45 minutes. And so I'm not limited by that because that wasn't my training. And so when I tell the people on the board of the, the Association for Spirituality and Psychotherapy, it's interesting to them in some way. I apologize. I say, I wasn't, I'm not limited by your training. I think people need more time to be able to open up and really tell you what's bothering them. You know, And the spiritual part of the treatment is, like Wayne Dyer says, there's a spiritual solution to every problem. Stress is usually based on a lack of information. And what I tell people is that you can't get better with the same mind that got you sick in the first place. If your thoughts are making you ill, you can't get better with those same thoughts. You need new thoughts, and the new thoughts someone has to give you. And those thoughts are usual, usually spiritual information to help you get through the things in your life that you're facing that are causing you stress and illness. Uh, Makes sense? And of all the... Yes, makes sense. And of all the things that you've done, all the skills that you've mastered, whether you are a oral surgeon, whether you're a writer, or even doing comedy, which of those expressions do you feel has affected the most people in the most positive way, and why? Well, again, that's a very difficult question, because even though I've managed to combine those two things, they affect people in different ways, you know, uh, I affected people, you know, with cosmetics. I mean, just taking care of people for so many years without hurting them. I changed a lot of people's perception. Uh, people felt that they could come to me at any time with a problem. I was always open to emergencies. And I made a lot of people look good, you know. My work, I, I took great pains. My work was very, very important to me. And so I took great pains in working on people. One patient once said to me, I think you'd rather hurt yourself than hurt me. <laughs> I had to laugh because I said, you know, you're right. It was so important for me to develop a way of painless injections, no matter what part of the mouth it's in. You wouldn't know this, but to give someone an injection on the roof of the mouth is probably one of the most painful injections that you can give. Oh. And I worked on a technique to make it relatively painless because it was important to me. So I affected people that way. And in comedy, making people laugh, what nicer thing can you do than make people laugh? You know. So it, I couldn't really compare which, which was more effective because I came at it from two different ways. But I think both ways changed people's lives dramatically to make people, and you know, like I'm on Sirius XM radio now on a pretty regular basis with Ron and Fez which is a great opportunity for me. I love those guys, and it's so cool that they brought me on with them because Sirius XM is huge, and Ron and Fez are legendary. And I'm on the Raw Dog channel. And one of the things that they said they like is that I bring positive energy to the show because a lot of comedians like to tear each other down, and I don't do that. So when I bring on a guest, I talk about what's good about that person, what I like about them. I don't feel the need to tear people down. 
and they were kidding me the other day. They're like, instead of you're like the opposite of a roast. They said, and I was I was laughing because I'm like, that's what I want to be. I want to be the opposite of a roast. I wrote for the Friars Roast for many years, but I would always ask people's permission. You know, in a Friars Roast, you're merely making fun of someone. So before I did that, that's not my nature to do that. So I would ask, are there certain things that the person is sensitive about that they don't want said? Because then I wouldn't write jokes about it. I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. You follow? And so yeah. on the radio, they said to me, you are the exact opposite of a roast. When you come on with someone, you're like doing a tribute to the person. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to I want to build up people. I want to strengthen people. I don't want to weaken them by making fun of them. It doesn't make sense to me. That's what children do. And that's what so upsets me that. about bullying. Bullying is a big topic for me, you know, things like that. That people make remarks to other people to try to take away your power because they feel so low about themselves. You know, you're supposed to outgrow that when you're a little kid. And when adults do it, it's particularly obnoxious. So that's my take on that. And, and can we talk about your? You are you've done so many things in comedy. You've been around the world of comedy, it seems over forty years, and you've worked with some of the biggest names in comedy. Whether you're writing, producing, or working on these fire roasts, I was wondering if you can tell our audience um, what you've done. Well, it's in not comedy, over forty but years, but it's probably close. It's over thirty. It's definitely over 40 thirty. Dead. And yeah, um, yeah after you, you did that, I just wanted to ask you the same question. Um, do you feel that there's a collective sadness and emptiness among a lot of stand-up comedians? Do you think that there's like a hunger to be um, to be heard or loved or listened to? And do you think that that's a big driving force behind comedy? Because, again, you've been told this a million times, and I've observed that you come from a different place when you do your comedy. It seems like you're very different in terms of where you come from. Like you're not going after the same things. Yeah, it, and that is interesting to me too. I have to. You know, compliment you on your questions. They're very well thought out. Um, a lot of comedians, you know, they're the guys that didn't fit in in high school. You know, they they um, a, a lot of times they used comedy to compensate for different things. You know, I have the the good fortune to have another career because I don't know what it would be like when you're just you know. Actually, it can work for you or against you. Jay Leno once said the worst thing in comedy is to have another career where you're making like 50,000 a year or more because it makes you comfortable and you're not hungry and if you're not hungry you won't push yourself to be a super success at comedy because comedy is very difficult to make a name for yourself and you have to go out on the road I never went on the road it's not what I want to do it's not who I am I wanted to be able to perform performing for me was like confronting one more obstacle. In my life, I've always confronted fears and things that I considered obstacles to me. That's what's important. So I wrote, for, I wrote comedy for people for many years before stepping on a stage because performing made me nervous. And so many people said to me, you should be out there, you should be performing. And I never got to do it. I just didn't get to do it till about 10 years ago. I took a class finally that gave me the courage because I, I, I lived with this feeling that I should be on stage and that I should be doing comedy. I was turned on to comedy since I was a kid. My dad turned me on to comedy. And I was always so drawn to comedy and always in some way saw myself that I should be on a, a stage, on television, 
like Woody Allen was one of my idols, you know, when he did stand-up comedy. That's what I, you know, I was so drawn to that. I always thought that that was going to be my place. That's why it was confusing about being a dentist and being in comedy. Um, and so, you know, life is easier if you only focus on one thing. I think, back to your question, so... I think that a lot of comedians, if that's all they do is comedy, there's a tremendous stress because you hardly make any money working clubs, doing comedy on the local scene. The only time you make money is when you're on the road. You do colleges, you do corporate events, you do, you know, you have to get out there. For me, my performing was a challenge to me because one of the things that I know we'll be discussing is that I was a very severe stutterer. And I don't want to get to that before you're ready, but. By me challenging me to go on stage and speaking like that is is an affirmation that I was able to cure myself of stuttering. I do everything, even this, our conversation. I'm aware of my voice at every moment because I'm so grateful that I stopped stuttering. And so I try to do everything that makes me uncomfortable. And that's one of the things that I teach people is to confront your uncomfortability because it's just based in fear. You know, okay. and fear well, what about is. What the subject of stuttering? Sorry. Yeah. As you're as you're saying, I just want to say that um, while we're on the subject of stuttering, I mean, you conquered stuttering. You found a cure for it on your own, and you had been stuttering for a long period of time. I think it was you said in your bio it was in your early twenties that you found a cure for it. Can you please explain or talk to the audience about um, how the challenge of having stuttering as a kid was how that impacted mm-hmm. your self-esteem and how you felt when you actually conquered stuttering on your own. And do you feel that by you conquering stuttering by yourself, that that was a um, a mechanism that you would use to conquer a lot of different other areas and challenges in your own life? Yeah, another great question, yeah. Um, I started stuttering when I was about six or seven years old. and um, And I stuttered... You know, until I was in my 20s, uh, I'm sure. And it, it could have gone even further than that, n- not as severely. Uh, my parents took me to speech therapy, and no one was really able to help me. Uh, to this day, uh, speech therapists are not sure exactly what the exact causes of stuttering. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that I know. But one day, and again, I feel that I was given the grace. Uh, first, it's a horrible disability to have. Uh I remember very clearly being in school and being called upon and just standing up and no words would come out at all. There's there's different kinds of stuttering. There's the kind where you repeat a letter, you know, like buh, 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 buh. And then there's the kind where you block and nothing comes out. Your throat locks up and you can't get any words out at all. And it's very humiliating. And I was standing in class and I remember, like it was yesterday, I just remember my face turning so red. I couldn't get anything out. I knew the answer. And and again, I was the kind of kid that in the earlier grades that would make believe I didn't know the answer, even when I did, because I didn't want the other kids to think that I thought I was smart. I don't know if you can grasp that. I'll say it. I didn't want them to think I thought I was smart. Not to think I was smart, but to think that I thought I was smart. I would rather have said, I don't know the answer, because I didn't want the other kids to feel bad about themselves, that I was smarter than them. So I gave myself a disability, and I relate that to stuttering. It's one of the things that I teach when I work with stutterers, because it's okay 
to be successful. It's okay to be a superstar if you want to be. You don't have to give yourself a burden. I realized one day that when I went into a room by myself, I didn't stutter. That all the words that were giving me trouble, like I couldn't say Gurian. My last name was impossible for me. Most stutterers have a very hard time saying their own names. And to me, the reason is because your name is your identity. It's who you are. And if you're not happy with who you are, you're not comfortable telling other people who you are. So that makes sense to me. That's why most stutterers have a hard time saying their own names. So I went into a room by myself, and I could speak perfectly. But then suddenly, if you showed up, I'd have to start stuttering. And because I'm in the comedy world, I use humor when I teach people. And I say, well, look, what if you thought you were in a room by yourself and you were speaking perfectly, and then someone popped up from behind the couch? How quickly would you have to start stuttering? You know, Would you have to start stuttering immediately, or could you give yourself like a minute or two? Or as soon as you saw them, would you have to start stuttering right away? And they start to see the absurdity of stuttering, that if there's really nothing wrong with you, because you can't lose a disability by your location. I use the example of a man who limps. If a person has a limp, he limps in every room of his apartment. He can't go into a room by himself and close the door and start and stop limping and walk perfectly. But with a stutterer, if you can go in someplace by yourself, close the door, you're alone, and now you don't stutter. Or you could speak to a baby and not stutter, or you could speak to a pet and not stutter. Then it means that there's really nothing wrong with you. If your speech mechanism works, it can't. It can't. You can't have a disease that only functions in certain rooms, that depends on your location. So that told me that there was really nothing wrong with me, and I made up my mind that I was not going to go through the rest of my life as a stutterer because it's a tremendous disability and it really holds people back. A lot of people never pursue their dreams because of stuttering. They don't go to school, they don't go to college, they don't pursue the jobs that they want because they can't go through an interview because it's humiliating to stutter in front of people. And people who are facing the stutterer don't know how to react sometimes. They try to help them with a word and all and it's really a terrible thing. And, you know, it's portrayed in movies as a joke. People like to make fun of stuttering, which is something that always bothers me. But that's a, a whole other thing. So I worked on myself for years. I decided, I made a decision that I was not going to go through the rest of my life as a stutterer. And I said, no matter what I have to do, I'm going to make this a goal of mine. And I became obsessed. I'm probably a little OCD. I became obsessed. And it's all I thought about day and night, and I worked on myself for several years, and I took my mind apart to examine my thoughts. What thoughts was I holding that were not valid, which is a very difficult thing to do? I had a feeling that it had to do with my self-esteem, my personal empowerment, how I thought about myself, and the way I look at it now is that I must have had uh, a negative self-image. I had low self-esteem. I didn't believe in myself. Because I used to think that I would never accomplish certain things in life. And I don't know what gave me that message. But I thought that I would never graduate from school, that I would never uh, find someone to marry, I would never have children. I wound up doing all of those things. But I, I never expected it of myself. So somewhere along the line, I developed a negative image of myself. And I took a uh, an in, what must have been an inferiority complex and had to turn it into a superiority complex. Not to feel better than other people, but just to feel even 
with other people. Because I used to say, most people don't need to stutter. They can feel fear, they can feel uncomfortable, but it doesn't need to make them stutter. So why does it need to make me stutter? And I convinced myself that it didn't need to make me stutter. So I did a form of auto-hypnosis, I guess, on myself, and I challenged myself in every way. So when I was in college, I remember very clearly that I made myself run for the president of the freshman class. Now, I had been popular in high school, but I didn't know it, which sounds like a strange thing to say. Um, I was two years younger than everybody else. I started school when I was four and a half, and I skipped the eighth grade. So I was 16 in college. So when I was in high school, I was like 14, 15 years old. I was very immature looking, much smaller than the other kids, two years younger. And I never really felt like I fit in. And yet I knew everybody. I was... I guess I was popular in school. I was voted the most talented. When I went to high school, they would have what they called senior celebrities. And every, you know, you would get a certain title. And it was kind of based on popularity. So I was voted most talented because I played the piano in those days. And that's how I got in in my high school yearbook. It says Jeffrey Gurian, most talented. Um, but so when when I got to college... I made myself run for the president of the freshman class, and it was a really big college, and I didn't know a lot of the kids, and I couldn't say my name because I was stuttering so badly. So I got other kids to act as what I called my campaign managers, and they would take me around, and they would introduce me to other students, and they'd say, Jeffrey's running for president. Vote for him. And once I got a few words out, then I would be able to speak, but I would stutter, you know. And I told myself, look, if you could win this election... You won't have to stutter anymore because it'll prove that people like you. I had a feeling that it was something about myself that I thought that people didn't like me in some way. So because you can't win an election if nobody votes for you, right? You got to have votes yeah. in order to win. So it was a great lesson for me because I won the election. I became the president of the freshman class of my college and I still stuttered. And it was a great lesson because it taught me that outside validation doesn't work. It doesn't matter how many people tell you that you're fabulous and fantastic and talented and gorgeous. It matters what you think of yourself. And that's when I really started my journey, uh, determined to change my mind, to change my thinking, to allow me not to stutter. And it took me a few years of retraining. I basically brainwashed myself. I made myself take speech classes where I had to give a speech. And amazingly, when I got up to give the speech, I didn't stutter. I stuttered before and after the speech. But when I went to the microphone to speak, I didn't stutter. And I believe that I, I in my mind, I became someone else. Like an actor takes a no. role in a script, you know, and they become a character. I became a guy who didn't stutter. And before I stopped stuttering, this is an important point before I stop on this, I was very nervous to stop stuttering. Because as much as I hated it, it was so much a part of my identity that who would I be if I didn't stutter? And a lot of people in your audience who are relating to what they're hearing will relate to that because it's scary to make a change in your life because you don't know who you'll be. Even if you're miserable with who you are, at least you know who that is. But if you make a change, who who will I be? And it turned out it was one of the best things I ever did and something that I'm so proud of that I was able to conquer that. So I love working with people who stutter and teaching them how not to stutter. Wow. And that, 
can our audience go to your website and learn more about this? We'll Absolutely. Put a link on I have a lot sure. of I have a lot of information. I have information on there about healing. It's jeffreygurian.com, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-G-U-R-I-A-N, is a nancy.com. And if they go to the about, there's a, a lot of stuff there. And feel free to avoid all the show business stuff. You can just go to where it says about, and a menu will come down, and you'll see <coughs> Excuse me. it has information on headache therapy, on stuttering, on healing, and there's a lot of stuff up there to read. And my email is there. They can contact me. It's jeffrey at jeffreygurian.com. And if people have questions and they want to write to me, that would be great. I, I love to answer questions from people. Do you feel that anyone has the capability to overcome any physical ailment? And do you think that what would be the first steps of them to basically start scaling their own impossible mountain? Well... There is something called the serenity prayer. I don't know if you know it, but the serenity prayer is grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's the most important sentence, the wisdom to know the difference. That's why I said I was given grace. If I hadn't been given the knowledge that I could stop stuttering, I would still be stuttering today. There are certain physical ailments that you can't cure on your own. Um... Fortunately, stuttering is not one of them. I believe that if you're willing to work as hard as I did, that you can release yourself from the bondage of stuttering. There are at least three million people in this country alone who stutter, so I hope some of them are hearing this or somebody who knows somebody is hearing this because knowledge is power. If no one ever told you that you could get better, you don't know you could get better. You know what? I called one of the major stuttering institutes and offered to be helpful and I got the guy on the phone who ran the Stuttering Institute, who got on the phone, I guess, because I'm a doctor, and so he, he was interested to hear what I had to say. And he actually said to me, no one has ever been cured of stuttering. And I was shocked to hear that. And I said, you know, I I, don't, I said to him, I don't even know what to say to you, because it, it, either I'm a pathological liar, and I just made up this whole story, or maybe I know something that could be helpful to you. But he wasn't open to it. He just insisted on saying that it's a physical disability. He wouldn't believe that it was a mental or emotional, you know, and and he was insisting that no one's ever been cured. I don't stutter anymore. I could, but I won't allow myself. I still feel the triggers when I'm in certain situations. My hands will get sweaty. I'll get a knot in my stomach, but I take back my power. I don't give away my power anymore to strangers. I won't stutter for people anymore. I feel too good about myself. I won't do that. So if people have ailments, they have to decide. If you have a true disability, like I said, if you have a limp or something like that, no matter how hard you think, I don't think you can get rid of it. You know, maybe someone could heal that. I don't know. But you have to have the wisdom to know the difference of what you can change and what you can't change. If there's an emotional factor to it, yes, you can change it. You can change a thought. You can change the way you think. And I've used that, I've used my cure for stuttering to overcome other obstacles in my life, all things. Well, it gives me great confidence so that I know that, you know. What were some of the obstacles, though? What were some of the obstacles that you were Well, there have been times in my life when I experienced sadness and depression, you know. And I wondered, why would I have to experience all these things? You know, I went through a divorce. That was a painful divorce for me. 
And we got along very well. It was amicable, but it was very painful because I never thought that that would be part of my life. And I learned things like, well, that woman who was the mother of my children, first I respect her so much because she gave me that gift that I might never have had if it wasn't for her. And she went on to adopt two other children and had one of her own. And those children needed to be born, and those two children needed to be adopted. And that couldn't have happened if we had stayed together. So when you look back on your life, there are certain things that make sense that didn't make sense before. Um, So I used my healing, my understanding of what I had to do to stop stuttering, to understand that I can change a thought at any time in my life. I don't have to be stuck in the thought that I have that says, well, this is something really bad for me. This is something very sad for me. Winter used to make me very sad. I would feel very depressed all winter when it got dark early because I need light. I don't feel that way anymore. I've come to enjoy every day. I don't want to wish time away. Okay. I, re- I realize that that was a right thought. There. Sure. Okay, we need to pause right there because a lot of people out there, myself included, we don't, we're not fans of winter, so please implement or explain how do we learn to embrace and love winter. Oh, okay. I thought you were pausing for a break. I didn't realize you were pausing no, for a question. No, pa- pausing, um, pausing because you brought up winter because you wanted to, you've actually been able to embrace the gray skies, winter. Yeah, I just, the I brown grass. I walk through the freezing cold. It's horrible out. We've had a brutal winter. I walk in the street and I think to myself, I'm okay. I'm warm. I'm dressed warm. My face is cold and it hurts a little bit, but that's okay. I stay in the moment. I experience life in the moment. I don't allow it to create fear, and I realize that if I if I hate winter, I'm wishing away like four or five months out of the year. That's a lot of time to wish away. I want to be able to enjoy it. There are people who love winter. They like to go skiing. They like snow. I don't like that. But if I if I live my life being depressed that it gets dark early, then I'm allowing myself to be sad for a good part of the year, and that's not beneficial to me. So I want to embrace every day because every day is important. And I can have plenty of fun in the winter. I don't have to be out on a snowboard or skiing or ice skating or whatever. I don't have to do things like that. I can just enjoy the beauty of the seasons and not have to live for spring and summer like I did when I was a kid. So using that kind of knowledge, I was able to manipulate my mind and change the way I think to say, I may not love winter, but it's fine for me. I go through it one day at a time. I don't start thinking, oh, two more months left of winter, and I count off the days. That's too, that creates tension and stress. I just face the day, whatever. If it's cold, I put on an extra layer. Or I don't go out if I don't have to, you know? Or I don't drive through a snowstorm if I don't have to. I I cater to my sensitivity. What I call, I teach people to create a happiness center for themselves because that's what I called my healing center, the happiness center, based on the concept that everyone deserves to be happy. So you surround yourself with things that make you smile in your home. You can't you can't control your environment except for where you live. The moment you leave the house, you're at the mercy of whatever the universe has in store for you. So the only time you can create you can control your environment is in your home. Every place you look should be something that makes you feel good. The colors that you paint your walls, you put up pictures of people that you care about. I, my home is filled with toys, with balloons, with crayons. I have a pot on my stove that's filled with balloons. And it's for me. I, call, I, I tell people I made balloon soup. And it may seem very silly, 
but I teach people how to play. When you were a little boy and your friends would come to your house and say, hey, can Jack come out to play? You'd get all excited. I say to people, why does that have to stop? Just because you got older doesn't mean you shouldn't play and have excitement in your life. So my house is filled with toys and beautiful flowers and plants all over and photographs and stuff for my kids and just things that every single thing, even though my house may look like it's crowded with things, everything is here because I want it to be here. You know, and everything oh. has a meaning to me. Speaking and of your so, house, anyone? Who, pardon me. Sorry, I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was. I didn't I was hear what say, you speaking, said. Speaking of speaking of your house, it's like anyone who's ever been into your apartment knows that you have wall to wall, like actually ceiling to bottom pictures of you with famous celebrities. When people go to your site and they see how many celebrities you've come to know, they're going to be blown away. And I want to talk about that right now. Is that um, sure. you've developed a tremendous rapport with hundreds of celebrities and other individuals who are incredibly successful. Um, they don't look at you as somebody who covers them, but they look at you as somebody as their equal. And they always have a lot of respect for you. You see a lot of these interviews when, when celebrities are doing these interviews, they call you by the first name. And very few people, I don't know anyone who has the rapport with celebrities that you have. And I wanted to know, what do you feel that you have about yourself, either inside or outside, that draws these individuals to you and causes you to have a really strong rapport with them? First of all, that's uh, it's so nice that you see that that way, that uh, your observation. And, and I always say it takes one to know one. You you must have that energy about you. Um, if 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 that's if that's what's happening, I think it's maybe that they feel that they can trust me. Uh, there's a, there's a feeling. Maybe they can also feel that I have a genuine affection for people. You know, I've always been drawn. Like when I started, I didn't know one person in show business. My grandfather owned a nightclub growing up, and you know it was a, a hub for entertainers. As a matter of fact, when I met Milton Berle many years ago, you know, Mr. Television, the legend, I think he told me that he knew of my grandfather's nightclub. Some of the older comedians had actually performed there in the Bronx, you know. But um, my feeling was always that I should know those people, and that I felt the same as them. Um, and so it's nice that you said that, that they they treat me like I'm one of them, that I belong there, because that's how I do my uh, my interviews. I have over 270 interviews at this point with A-list celebrities, people like Jimmy Fallon and Chelsea Handler and Jon Stewart and Jack Black, Bob Saget, Kevin Hart, you know, just on and on. And people say that my interviews are the kind that other people don't get which is really how I got to do this serious XM thing. Um, I, I, I'm i not sure. I, you can't tell how people or why a person responds to you in a certain way. I hope it's because I'm putting out a positive energy. Like when I'm on the red carpet, even though these people are in a hurry, they actually stop off and talk to me. Uh, and last year I was filming at, at the Just for Laughs, uh, festival in Montreal, which is the biggest comedy festival in the world. And I was interviewing Nick Kroll. Nick Kroll is the star of the hit show on Comedy Central called Kroll Show. And he's currently dating Amy Poehler, and he's he's huge, and everybody loves Nick. And I was interviewing him on the red carpet for this big event. And Sarah Silverman, 
ran over and jumped into the interview, and she said, I skipped all the other press people, and there are people there from all the TV stations. She said, I skipped all the other press people to come and talk to you. <laughs> I want to be in your interview. And I was astonished. I was really shocked. And she and Nick, I did a, a double interview with both of them. And it's really not like Sarah. Sometimes she can be very quiet. And I felt honored that she did that. And I've gotten, you know, Bob Saget said on camera, and people will see in the interview, he's like, no one says no to Jeffrey Gurian. I, you couldn't pay someone to, to say something like that. He said it from his heart, and it, and it, it meant something to me. You know, there are people that they'll, they'll hug me on camera, and I'm like very grateful for that. So whatever it is... I must be doing something that's making them feel comfortable. I like to think it's because of a healing energy that's part of me, that it isn't something that I have to try to do, that it, it feels naturally to me. When I see people, I want to hug them. That's what I do. That's how I say hello to people. I usually give them a big hug because that feels right to me, you know? And And... So maybe that carries over. But as I said, I didn't know one person in the entertainment world. And now I know so many in all different areas of entertainment. And and I have no idea what that's leading towards. I still don't feel I still feel like I don't know my true path. You know, I have interesting opportunities that are coming up uh possibly for television and stuff like that and you know, it's it's about providing access to people. I like going backstage. I like seeing people behind the velvet rope and getting to know them as people, you know, and having them talk about things. Not, not like just a, a strange journalist who never met them before would go up and just ask them regular questions that anybody might ask. I like the kind of thing where you're just hanging out and you get to see the person for who they really are. You know, uh, I know that you know Mick Foley, one of the greatest guys in the universe and also a man who's accomplished so many different things. And I was with him last week and we did such a great interview about all the facets of his life. And with all that he's been through, he's just an amazing individual, an amazing human being. And I always feel blessed. And he thanked me so much for coming to his show. I, I was thanking him and he was thanking me for coming to see him perform. I think he's just a great individual. So I honor people who perform. I I honor what they do. I never write anything bad about a person. Uh, if I don't like a performance that they did, I just don't write about it. I don't, you know, because I have a, a blog, a Comedy Matters blog, where I write about shows and stuff. But if someone did a bad show, I don't write that because that's not my purpose. I respect everybody that goes on a stage to perform, no matter what it is, because I know how hard it is to do that. And not everybody's going to do well all the time. So maybe that's what wow. they're feeling. You know, it's very possible that, with it. and that hopefully I'm really that's what they're feeling that, for me. Yeah, and I'm really surprised you said Pardon the answer. I said you don't know what you're... I'm really, I was really kind of surprised when you said the answer about not fully knowing what your full life's purpose is because I wanted to bring to the attention of the audience that you are one of these individuals who has so many ideas... A lot of them are brilliant ideas. You you come up with these ideas, and you manifest them into physical reality. You've accomplished what 25 or 30 people would accomplish in even a, um average to successful lifetime. I mean, you, you constantly are manifesting ideas, putting things into practice. 
And there are a lot of people out there that have these ideas that keep them inside, but they never manifest them physically. So I want to ask you, why do you feel that some people have the ability to manifest or don't have the ability to manifest these things? And why have you been able to manifest so many of your ideas and bring them into being? But what's interesting about your question is that I have so many more things that I want to do that I haven't done yet. I, I you know, and it's and it's funny to me to hear you say that because no one knows what anybody else's life is like. And I feel like that I haven't accomplished I mean I see on paper that yes, I can say I've done all these things, but there's so much more that I wanna do. So it doesn't leave you it's not like I have this sense of comfort that I have fulfilled all my dreams. Uh it's far from that. I have I really don't know what my path is supposed to be. It's a very unusual path. All I know is that I'm supposed to bring positive energy to the world in some way. I, I love bringing healing. I love bringing people together. I like... That's one of the things about comedy. I like bringing the races together. I was one of the... Maybe one of the only white people honored for Black History Month. I was just talking about that on the radio. Because February is Black History Month, you know? And I was talking about that. Because it was an interesting thing. I love that. I love bringing people together. I don't understand hatred. I don't understand the, the mean streak that some people have. When we're talking about this movie, 12 Years a Slave, who ever even thought, what part of mankind ever got the thought that they should own another person? And and how do people kill people? I don't understand. Like, you know, I, I, I make myself sound naive, but things like the Holocaust, how do people do that to another human being when most people feel bad if you accidentally step on someone's foot you know how do you how can anyone be so inhumane how are there people like that in the world uh those are the kind of things that i think about that and that worry me sometimes that i don't understand that i i don't want i don't even want that in my consciousness i don't see movies that are sad i don't see movies that would upset me i try to limit myself to positive things. I love comedies. I see things like that, you know. So um, people who want to manifest, you have to put that energy out to the universe. That's what I do. This radio thing has been a dream of mine for many years, to be on radio. I didn't know how it was going to come about. And then Ron from Ron and Fez had had me on the show several times and said to me, you know what, we love it when you come on. We have a great time and we're moving to this uh, new station and I want you to come on and bring people on that you like and you know some there are people who sometimes find you in this huge world there are a couple of people like I said Nick Kroll brought me out to Los Angeles to be on his hit show three times playing myself I'm going to be on in, in this new season uh, I'm in the finale with Katy Perry and Amy Poehler which is unbelievable. And I'm on a few episodes of The Real Housewives of New York that is starting on March 11th. I got asked to be in a few episodes. I created a comedy sketch for them to do on the show. And so so you have to put this out. You have to want it with all your heart, and you have to step away from your fear and make yourself do something that's holding you back. Everybody that has a dream that is not being fulfilled, they're walking around with the weight of that on their shoulders, it's palpable. You can feel it. You know, and you have you to. Think that could most of the time, we hold ourselves back with fear. So you have to, you have to detach from the fear, and make yourself do it. Otherwise, you know, they say that thing. You don't want to go to your grave 
thinking I should have done that. You know what I mean? What's the worst that could happen? Is it won't work? You know, no one's going to kill you. Said, um, lot, do you think a lot of people in this country, uh, in the United States of America, that are uh, tremendously overweight and obese? Do you think that that could be a, a physical manifestation of a lot of people not following their dreams and being weighed down with fear? Absolutely. There's no question about it. Food is a drug. You know, and it's so funny that you ask that because I have two daughters, and one of my daughters is a nutritionist, and she's the nutritionist for the Scarsdale Medical Center, and she's she created, uh, uh, it's called Hunger Shield. It's selling all over the country, and it's an appetite suppressant because she works with people. You know, it's funny that both of my daughters are in the health field, and she works with people who look at food as a drug, and she teaches them how to think differently about food and how how to uh, lose weight by a, a lot of times through thinking. It's not just about what you don't eat. It's about thinking things through, realizing that food is an addiction, you know. So she's been doing this hunger. I'm so proud of her that she invented a thing called Hunger Shield, and, and it's all over. It's selling in stores all over the country. So... I think food is definitely related to that. People feel frustrated. They want to take something that makes them feel better. So alcohol, drugs, food, shopping, gambling, any of those things, that's where addictions start. People are not comfortable with the way they feel. They want to take something to take away the discomfort. You know, one of the ways of doing that is to is to make yourself go out and challenge yourself. I love the people magazines that say People who are half their size. I never had a weight problem, but I admire people so much who change. You see these people who's 150, 200 pounds. And it's just amazing that they do that for themselves. They give themselves a whole new life because most people don't have the wherewithal to do it. Most people are stuck where they are, and they and they stay there. They don't have the courage to get out of it sometimes, or the grace, I guess. And then there are people who do. And that's always so exciting to me to see people who change their lives so radically. Amazing. The power of the mind. You know, the power of the mind. And Jeffrey, last final question is, um, what would you say would be the top three lessons that uh, collective humanity can learn from observing and studying your life? Oh, boy. Uh... Well, just you know, first of all, be kind to each other. Try and try and be nicer to each other because when you're nice to someone, like you know, I find that I smile at people that I don't know. You know, they carry that over. You know, a positive energy is is catching in a sense. You know, you can spread it from person to person. If you have a pleasant expression on your face, no matter what's going on in your life, everybody has stress in their lives. But I think that that's an important thing is to is to be open to other people. So I think that is one thing to be kinder to people. You know, even something like I was looking for a parking spot. You know, it's so hard to park in Manhattan. I pulled up next to a guy who had his lights on and I said to him, "Are you pulling out?" And he said, "I'm not, but I I'm just waiting for somebody. You could have the spot." And he pulled out. And, you know, that's what I do, but most people don't do that. I've had people who just say, yeah, in about 10 minutes, and they just sit there, and you have to sit and wait. When they could easily just pull out and pull in someplace else, or if there's a hydrant they could pull in, just to make someone else's life a little bit easier, 
And this guy who did that for me, I appreciated it so much. I was, I was like, thank you so much. That's such a nice thing to do. Every once in a while, you meet somebody who does that. So that's one thing, to be kinder to each other. Uh, the other lesson is that you can accomplish more than you think you can. You know, if you have a dream, you have to go for it. Nobody's going to ever knock on your door and say, would you like to do this and make your dream come true? You have to grab yourself by the neck sometimes and throw yourself out of the house. I've inconvenienced myself so many times over the years to be known in the entertainment business, to be at shows, to stand in the cold waiting to get in someplace, to meet somebody, to let them read my material, to just... It's on and on, working so many years to try to get recognition for what you believe in. If you believe that you have a talent, you know, you need to be out there showing it to people. So that's another thing is that... And and maybe third is that, that you can overcome almost any obstacle in your life through the power of your mind that you can overcome all kinds of things. The way I did with stuttering, you can use that to overcome almost anything that crosses your path. Not necessarily a physical ailment, but any kind of emotional things. Depression, you can work your way out of that. You know, uh, just sadness. You go through times in your life when you're going through a breakup or a divorce or things. And it's a, it's, a, it's how you look at it, you know. Your your point of view is always very important, and spiritual wisdom is very important in that. So reading is important. Reading esoteric wisdom, ancient wisdom, reading spiritual literature, learning to to uh, incorporate those principles into your life. I think that that is what will give people a happier life. And uh, if I can be helpful in disseminating that kind of information, and that will be a great goal of mine. Mr. Jeffrey Gurian, I want to thank you so much for being with us today on our very first show. Because more about Jeffrey by going to his website at ComedyMattersTV.com. We are joined today with one of the world's most powerful and respected psychic mediums, Miss Carrie O'Connor. You can learn about her at our website, CarrieO'Connor.com. Ms. O'Connor, what did you read when you were reading into Jeffrey Gurian's energy? I saw somebody that is, I call him a star-born person. It's interesting that he created the star therapy. Jack, when I see in somebody's energy field somebody that is super, super sensitive, grew up as a kid, overcame all the stuff that he overcame with, He's I call them bridger somebody that comes into this world to to bridge, to connect us, to connect from our hearts, to be able to get out of our own egos and to be able to spread love. It's really He's really comes from a place of not wanting to hurt people. He's in a position where he could write scathing articles about people, use comedy to hurt people, and he does it the totally opposite way. So he's a forerunner. He's a one of the old people that come in as an ancient soul, that comes into this earth to help uh, people get out of their their stuck ways. Okay, and, and do you feel that... Um, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just say, it's amazing all that he does. It's showing people it's never too late, and I think it's fascinating that he even says that he still doesn't know what his life purpose is. He's an orthodontist. He does, he's a comedian writer. He's on radio. He's... He does all these different jobs, and it's, it's amazing that he's still not plugged into a life purpose. And I would say 
part of his life purpose is to continue to follow his passion because when we do that, we are literally radiating out a very high-frequency energy. And I've, my guides told me a long time ago, saying of what feels light for you is right for you now and just continue, continue to, to, to follow what makes you feel light, passionate, exciting. And that's what I see Jeffrey does. Okay, do you feel that he's uh, an individual whose purpose in, life, in this life incarnation is to, how do I say, spread this higher frequency in order to raise people up? Is his purpose to kind of help raise humanity up or raise consciousness? Absolutely, absolutely. He's, he would be one of those individuals, Ryan, that I could see walking down the street and he would glow like a thousand-watt light bulb where most people are so guarded they look like 50-watt light bulbs and that that thousand watt light bulb literally it goes out to the individuals, and that he spreads light, for sure. Uh, now, does he have um, any relatives or any spirit guides that are actively following or surrounding him at this moment in time? I see a band of people behind him that I call the the, the star healers. A lot of times, I know he's had a lot past lives in Lemurian times and Atlantean times, and it was interesting that he commented that he believes his healing ability comes in from a past life or at least be open to past life. So I see an ancient group of souls with him that have been profound healers. Absolutely. And do you have any um, feeling or inclination about where his life, where his next life incarnation will be? His next life incarnation? Yeah, his life life incarnation. Like what, what is his... Yeah, where is where where his soul is going to evolve? But what next point of existence? Do you think he'll come back for another, um, you know, trip on the Earth plane? I think you see him going somewhere I else. I don't know. No, Ryan, the star people like his energy. I see that they mm-hmm. haven't spent a lot of incarnations on Earth, and that he came down here to help Earth wake up and evolve and to get to that space of love and, and peace. And I, I don't see that he'll be back to this plane. He'll be in the celestial realms. And where I look like it looks like star energy to me. Okay, all right, Miss Carrie O'Connor. You can go to her website, CarrieO'Connor.com. Thank you so much, Carrie. You're welcome. Always glad oh, to see okay. you. We are now joined by world-leading astrologer Miss Constance Stellis. You can learn more about Constance by going to her website at Constance C O N S T A N C E. Stellas, S-T-E-L-L-A-S dot com. And Constance, what did you learn and read into about Mr. Jeffrey Gurian? Well, obviously a fascinating person, uh, melding two different, I mean, I, I before I did his chart, I also looked him up on the Internet. And what strikes me, he's a Capricorn, and Capricorn rules teeth. <laughs> And he's a dentist, as well as a comedy writer. So I found that, you know, kind of um, interesting. Um, the other thing is that um, he, as a Capricorn, and it's not only his son that's in Capricorn, it's also Mars and his rising sign, um, he he was not ever going to do anything that wasn't going to make him a, a living. So his comedy, suffering for his art, was not in the cards. So he he actually made a terrific blend of um, comedy and dentistry. 
Uh, his moon sign is Pisces, and I wasn't sure because I, I thought that perhaps he had um, also branched out into the healing arts, which is very, very much um, in tune with the Pisces moon. Um, his uh, okay, so and his rising sign is also Capricorn. So he has a chart that is filled with opportunities for unusual combinations, and I think that that fits in pretty well. I think the marriage department was probably a little bit dicier, <laughs> but uh, I don't know for sure. Um, and he he has. Um, I think he has a very, very uh, passionate involvement with whatever he he does. Um, right now, if we look at what's happening in his chart, Saturn is going through his 10th house of career, and that either signifies a shift or a great deal more uh, responsibility and also delays in projects that he might, you know, have his heart set on. Um, he, he is a, a, a writer. I know he wrote a book, but he has uh, writing indicated in his in his chart. And uh, the other thing that was interesting is that if I did I read correctly, Jack, that he went into healing arts in some way. Is that true? Yes. Yes. That he's a healer. Yeah. So what that means is that planets retrograde and then they go forward. They become direct. And um, that would be a, 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 an easy time for his, um, let's say, genius, because Uranus always uh, indicates genius. We each have a little bit of it. Some people have a lot. Um, to, to be more outgoing and uh, forward-reaching. Uh, because the um, latent kind of healing and seer tendencies in his chart took a while to develop. I mean, he was pretty busy. He was being a dentist. He was being a comedy writer, all sorts of things. He also has a tendency to have um, quite unexpected and maybe, you know, we'll say jolts in his life. So it's a rhythm that can unfold, and then there's a, a jolt Um and I think that he's probably learned to to balance um, that. Uh, he's coming up to um, a certain flourishing in terms of financing through his more healing arts. Um, not that he'll, you know, let go of the comedy and everything else, but that seems to be the the major thrust um, uh, right now. Wow, that's, that's incredible. Really incredible, and Ms. Constance Dallas, thank you, thank you so much for your analysis. I'm Mr. Jeffrey Gurian. My pleasure, my pleasure. Who, who Today we are with Ms. Laura Lynn, psychic reader and past life regressionist specialist. And you can go to Laura's website at angelreader.net. And Ms. Lynn, what did you find when you were doing some past life regression work on Mr. Gurian? It felt like that Jeffrey had many times that he had to work actually in servitude and also as a healer. I was really fascinated. At first, when I was hearing about his story, I had a strong impression about him living in the 1500s in Argentina as actual an actual humble, very humble shaman. He was working with energies of touch and also 
he would use sound frequency healing. I had an impression, a very um, powerful impression that he would actually use toning, uh, perform a, a sense of toning to help people heal. Okay. And um, did you want me to move yeah, on? Yeah, or? sure. Okay, well, one thing that I had here that he did have a master from Peru that taught him some of this, and I do feel that that master is actually one of his spirit guides right now named Hero. And I actually I got the um, name J-U-R-O as that master's name, and I believe that he helps him in his day-to-day challenges. Okay, and what would you say, uh, you, have you seen uh, any other Jeffreys of life incarnations in America? I have. Uh, there was two here, well, one recent, the most recent that I picked up on was him being in, the during the Civil War time, as a slave. And I believe at that point he was a woman. And again, I have him as being a healer to the point where even the white women in the village in North Carolina, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry, South Carolina, utilized his her knowledge, if you will, her knowledge on the different herbs and medicinal purposes of Barks that he, Jeffrey, she, the the woman, actually brought into the the village from her practice, and she was well well received. So that's very unusual, and I found it very interesting. Okay, so based on what you've been saying is that Jeffrey has uh, been in a healing all throughout a lot of his previous life incarnations, and do you know what his purpose in this life incarnation is? Well, it felt feels like with uh, there was some great pain that he had to go through, through for a couple lifetimes, and being in that place of going through the pain, he came here strong to be a healer, to help people heal in the best way possible. And, you know, it seems like <clears throat> that he had a lot of uh, strength working with the throat chakra. Okay. Uh, probably that is why he's, he's chose dentistry, which is, you know, the mouth is one of the most sensitive areas in the body. For it, it, it also heals very quickly. So if you can tap into that space, you're actually tapping into communication, and then it goes into deeper uh, consciousness from there, how we actually work with other people. So it does feel like he has a strong impression of, of being a, a really a powerful healer in this lifetime. Uh, that's really wonderful. And do you think um, or feel that his energy, what he's doing in this life incarnation, do you think that, do you know, have any idea where he's going to be going in the next ones or the previous ones to come? Well, what I have an impression is that he is going to go back to what one of his incarnations was, was uh, working with the Navajo or being uh, a teacher in the Navajo Nation. And it feels like in the future he will go back to a reservation and do some very uh, uh, some solid work there. Okay. That's really wonderful. And in terms of his energy, based on what you're able to read, do you feel that he has come into this life incarnation to be a, um, a a teacher for humanity or more of a teacher, more of a healer, or a bit of both? A bit of both. Uh, I feel like he's learned through his master, the teacher, uh, hero, uh, that he is 
to be here to help teach other people through his impressions and just through his his example, almost like a mirror, um, and also through his touch. Whenever he does, whenever a person does have the opportunity to be within within his uh, sphere, if you will, he is able to bring a, a, a natural healing. But it feels like Jeffrey. I don't know if he has worked with this at, not at, at this point, but it feels like he would really do well with distant healing and even audience healing. Wow, so he could be an individual that will walk out to a number of different uh, big audience and what, physically touch them and heal them? Yes, just through his presence and through his, uh, that that internal desire to bring a healing, you know, to a certain group, he could actually put his hands out and the energy would touch them and help them to that process. Sure, we actually talked to Jeffrey about this, and we tried to uh, figure out where the energy was coming from then. Where do you see this healing energy coming from? Why is he uh, um, facilitate this healing energy? What I'm suspecting is that Jeffrey is what I would refer to as, as, as they, they call him the star people. The Navajo Nation refers to him as the star people. And <clears throat> I feel like he has learned or works with the universal energy and brings this uh, kinetically or brings it through a stream of light from a source that is really part of the cosmos, very, very clear intent of unconditional love. And what happens is that when he's tapping into that energy, because we are literally all stardust, what happens is that it helps the person resonate to who they, they're remembering who they are. Their higher self is, is challenging them to remember that on a cellular level. And so Jeffrey has the innate, the, the energy to bring that through his own intent to bring the highest good healing. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay, Miss Larlin, you can read more about her at angelreader.net. And if you do research for Miss Lynn and you look up her reviews, you're going to find about a hundred five star reviews on Miss Lynn. Sure, truly uh, the best in the business. And it's a real pleasure, Miss Lynn. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ron. Okay, and that wraps up the very first edition of the Ad Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. I look forward to doing more shows to come. We're going to continue to explore things, do forensic soul analysis, uh, hopefully have some fun. But this is the beginning of a long journey, and we are honored to have you with us and be a part of it. Uh, to learn more about our radio show, please go to our website, which is www.outerlimitsradio.com. Thank you so much. <laughs>